it's a flawed outlook to think about everyone as being member of a particular group, especially considering how diverse the United States is. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Good evening, John. Good evening, Kiva. All right, good. Well, welcome everyone to our Race to Social Justice podcast series. I'm Kiva White, and as always, I like to introduce myself as the black guy. And I'm John Kepner, uh, I'm the white guy. And Kiva and I share a love of the letter K, K for Kiva and K for Kepner, but importantly, K for knowledge. What we try to impart in these podcasts, what Kiva calls the K factor. And, uh, you know, the goal of our podcast is to promote racial and social equity and justice through honest, even sometimes difficult conversations, what we call courageous conversations. Kiva and I have found in our discussions with each other that we've deepened our respective understandings of racism and our own personal responsibilities in that regard. And that led us to invite guests like our, our one tonight to share their honest experiences and learnings. Um, and, um, and we hope that these conversations will, will help our listeners and maybe even our guests in their own journeys. Yeah. So Kiva, who is our guest tonight? Uh, thank you, John. Uh, I have the uh, wonderful pleasure to introduce to our, our listeners today, uh, Mr. Nick Montalto. Uh, and we were prior to us, uh, you know, jumping on and, and activating the, uh, the record here. Me and Nick was just reflecting back back on the last time we actually spoke and saw each other because we did some work together. Uh, and actually, uh, Nick is still active with uh, the New Jersey Statewide Network for Cultural Competence. Uh, they have a leadership council there. And I was a member of the leadership council for about a year or so before I transitioned out to do some other things. And now I'm looking to, you know, to return back to that work. But Nick is really uh, bringing with us today his uh, uh, perspective on immigration, immigration laws and, you know, the whole history of immigration. And so I think I think it, it goes well with our theme and the discussions we have here on um, social justice. So, uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Kiva. <clears throat> I'm really looking forward to uh, our conversation tonight. Great, great. So we always we always kind of start these out with uh, kind of like um, an icebreaker question just for you to tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up. Where did you live? Tell us a little bit about your parents. And what did, what, what did, what did you do as a kid? Like, what was it like for you growing up as a kid? Give us a little bit of background about yourself. Well, let me tell you that I uh, grew up in uh, an Italian-American neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, it was a rather sheltered environment. Mm. Um, however, I lived on the periphery of that neighborhood, meaning that just around the corner was the beginning of a Jewish neighborhood. Now, mm. I, should I should tell you that the New York of my youth was the New York of Daniel Patrick Moynihan's Beyond the Melting Pot. There were five major groups. It was diverse, but the diversity wasn't as expansive as it was today. There were Blacks, there were Irish, there were Puerto Ricans, there were Italians, and there were Jews. So I did not have much contact with the Black, the Irish, or the Puerto Ricans. My contact was 
with the uh, with the Italian and the and the Jewish. But I do want to share with you um, a little bit about my grandparents hmm. because I, the, my grandparents on my father's side because I think their situation may have influenced me. Hmm. Both of my grandparents were abandoned children in Sicily. And as abandoned children without families, they had a very, um, their prospects for the future were not very good. Um, and so they came to America to begin a new life here, but they were outcasts from Italian society. And so I think that created in me a little bit of an appreciation for that kind of dilemma that they faced as, as uh, abandoned children. Mm. Um, let me go back to my neighborhood in Brooklyn. I'll tell you a little bit about my experiences growing up. Um, I would say most of my contacts uh, up until the age of about 12 were with the Italian American kids on my block. But when I reached adolescence, I walked around the corner and I met with, I, I made friends with a lot of Jewish kids uh, to the point where um, by the time I was 14 years old, I had gone to three bar mitzvahs. Mm. And that was uh, sort of a, an enlightening experience for me because I learned uh, some different traditions. For example, all of my Jewish friends had their own personal libraries. They wow. all enjoyed reading. We would be on the street playing stickball and they would be practicing French, which they were, which they were learning in junior high school for the first time. So that was a little bit of a revelation. And uh, I think it sort of set me up for the idea that you can learn a great deal through your interactions with other people. Wow. Um, but I'd, I'd like to share with you two incidents involving race in my formative yeah. years. Mm -hmm. And they're not pleasant incidents, and I haven't really spoken about it very much to anyone, but I'll share it with you. Yeah. Uh, we were roughly uh, 13 years old, and we heard about a dance at a church hall I would say approximately five miles from where we lived in the Bath Beach section of Brooklyn. That was a predominantly Italian-American area. However, there was an enclave of Blacks that lived around the church. When we went to that, we took a bus. When we got off the bus to walk to the church, we were attacked. Mm. And it was not that we had instigated anything. We did absolutely nothing, but we walked into a situation where we had to flee for our lives. So we managed to make it to the church, but of course that leaves an impression on you. Now, I have no idea what was going on behind yeah. the scenes. There might've been you know, a history of, ra of racial tension in that neighborhood. We might've been perceived as somebody you know, that maybe was violating the territory or something like that. But that was one thing. The other thing I have to tell you about my grandparents on my mother's side. Um, my mother was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, every summer, we would go to St. Louis to spend the summer with my grandparents. Right? 
Now, they lived in a middle-class neighborhood in St. Louis, but it was a neighborhood that was in transition. And there were many Black people that were moving into the neighborhood. So um, every year that we would go in the summer, there would be fewer and fewer white people on the block. Mm. To the point where, in the very end, my grandparents were the only white people left on that block. Wow. Now, for my mother, this was something that was, I mean, we didn't feel any threat or anything like that. It wasn't that we sure. were worried when we were there. But for my mother, I think that stoked some racist feelings in her. She was very resentful of the fact that, you know, she couldn't feel comfortable about where her parents were living. So mm. I just wanted to share that with you. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. What do you take away from those experiences? Yeah. How did they, how did they shape your feeling about racism and um, influence you as you grew up? Well, uh, I have to say that uh, in my own case, uh, when I went to college, uh, I fell in with the group of very progressive people. We were all uh, like associated with the college newspaper. And in fact, I became feature editor of the college newspaper. Those folks had quite an influence on me. The other thing that had an influence on me is I was elected as representative of my college to the National Student Association. And every uh, year we would go to conferences. I went to two different conferences, one at the, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, one in Indianapolis, Indiana. At those conferences, we met leaders of the civil rights movement. In fact, all of the student leaders came up from the South to talk to fellow students from around the United States. So that was a really eye-opening experience for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I felt like there was something that I should do to support the movement. Um, what I did was I joined something called the Northern Student Movement. Did you ever hear of the Northern Student Movement? No, and give us a contact. Years you were in college and where'd you go to college? And so I went to Manhattan College in, okay. uh, in okay. the Bronx. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're talking here about uh, 66, 67. Okay. And... Um, the Northern Student Movement was an effort on the part of, I would say probably white students in the North to help the black community. And so mm -hmm. what I ended up doing is I would go to Harlem to tutor young black children who needed help in, you know, with their, with their academic mm -hmm. studies. You know, when I think about this, I'm, I'm not quite sure how exactly I made that trajectory, especially considering where I grew up, but, um, I, I, you know, that's, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Wow. And did, did you have some time overseas growing up? Did you, did I see that? Some? So, yes. So that was a really formative experience for me. Um, when I was in graduate school, my roommate in graduate school was someone who introduced me to an organization called the Experiment in International Living. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a Vermont-based organization. Mm -hmm. And he had just returned from Egypt 
after spending a summer in the experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, he went on to become the leader of an organization, the leading organization in the United States promoting uh, harmonious relations between the United States and the Arab world. So mm -hmm. his experience also influenced his decisions in life. So um, I thought it was great. And I applied for a scholarship to go into the experiment. And I got the scholarship. And guess where I ended up? I ended up in Morocco. Wow. And wow. the way the program works is that you live for one month with a Moroccan family. You become a member of the family. The young people of the family become your brothers and your sisters. And you just live the normal life of someone in that family for an entire month. The second month, you travel around the country with your Moroccan brother or sister. So every American that was participating in that program was traveling with their brother or sister. So, you know, what can I say about that experience? It was challenging, but really eye-opening. And I learned an awful lot about a different culture, a different way of life. And in the end, I loved it. Right? And was there a different language and a different religion? Well, fortunately, I studied French in college, okay. and a lot of the, uh, the Moroccans speak French. So that was mm -hmm. our language of uh, interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the other uh, overseas experience was the Peace Corps. Mm. And uh, my wife and I, after we got married, we chose to serve in Iran. And we were there for two years. Of course, this was before the revolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, we deliberately chose to live in a um, small community, sort of an oasis community in the middle of the desert. Uh, there were no other English speakers in that town. And we wanted that kind of situation so that we would, uh, you know, would be easier to learn the language, easier to be exposed to a traditional culture. So those years were among the most uh, important in our lives. I mean, it, it, it just had a ripple effect throughout our lives. Um, we, uh, you know, what I say about these two experiences is that they enabled us to simulate what it was like to be an immigrant. You know what I mm. mean? Mm. Because, well, I mean, we had the support of the US government. We had the backing of the experiment as, as an organization. So it wasn't exactly the same. But, you know, in Iran, we went through all the stages of adjustment that the sociologists describe, you know, including culture shock. You know, we went through a period of culture shock. But ultimately, we were able to, uh, you know, adapt to the culture and feel comfortable there. So I think those experiences sort of... Uh, um, they, they kind of shaped us for, shaped me for a career working with immigrants. Mm. Now, after that, um, I came back and I applied for a doctoral program at the, uh, at the University of Minnesota. The university has um, had one of the first research centers devoted to immigration in the United States. It's called the Immigration History Research Center. Mm. So I spent uh, two years there. And uh, that's how I got interested in the subject of intercultural education, uh, which I can go into if you'd like. 
Well, I want I, I'm going to just circle back just a little bit about and talk about um, the widening of your cultural lens, because you started out by talking about growing up in Brooklyn and, and your neighborhood was kind of sheltered. And then your just expanded knowledge came with your one ability to, you know, travel to different areas of the world, which I think is essential to, you know, to understanding other cultures, learning about your own sense of appreciation of where you're at and even wherever you place here in the States. So I want to, I want to just ask like out of the one thing that you would say um, that you got out of just widening your cultural lens, what would that have been from, you know, from just growing up as a 12 year old boy in Brooklyn. And then as you turn, as you moved into adulthood, you started expanding, traveling around the world, seeing how different people live how did that, like, what, what word would that, what, what word would you say, the one thing that you got from that? Because I have a word, I know for me, when I travel to other countries, I always try to do a cultural study a year, and, and I have my word, but I wanted to see, if, do you have, like, one word that you can pinpoint that resonates with you as, as a result of you expanding your, your cultural lens? Kiva, that's a great question, and I, I guess what I would say is that, um, in all of these instances, I came away with an appreciation for another culture. And it was a challenge uh, to actually do that. And there were times when I wanted to run the other way. Yeah. But in the end, it was, uh, you know, just give you an example. Mm. I was in a Muslim society, right? And everything was different. Uh, there were hardly any Christians at all in the entire country of, of Iran. But when you look at the behavior of most people, it's hard not to say that they're not acting as Christians. Mm. So what it taught me is that maybe the doctrine isn't all that important. It's the ability of people to practice loving behavior. And that, mm. I mean, I saw, I certainly saw that loving behavior in Iran. Wow. Wow. I, I, I'm, I thank you so much for sharing that. Cause I know um, my, I guess my soundbite is always when I go to different countries and, and visit and, and experience different cultures, I leave out, the, out of there. And in my mind, I'm, you know, I'm saying, we uh we all have similarities despite our differences, mm-hmm. and so for me, and can grow, it's I have to have a vulnerable willingness to adapt. That's kind of like my my mantra to learn about different cultures, mm-hmm. and I think that's where it's a big challenge here in, in 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 our country. We we don't see that as much where people have a vulnerable willingness to adapt and learn about the the you know the different cultures that are just here. We're rich in culture here in this country. And there's so much division that, you know, I, you know, I wish I wish that um, all, all, all Americans can have those experiences where we cross over to different cultures and, we, and, and we're doing it with this vulnerable willingness to learn about one another. I think it will do a great deal for our society. You know, Kiva, one thing um, I believe very strongly in is that most Americans don't realize that we are indeed learning from each other. Mm. Um, And there is a process taking place of interaction. I mean, look at what we've learned from the black community. I mean, 
you could almost say that the black community is responsible for whatever advances we have made in the area of civil rights, right? Yeah. That has benefited the entire country. So there's so much go, I mean, look at what I learned from the, you know, my Jewish friends as a child. Yeah. Yeah. So all, all of that is taking place, but we don't appreciate it as much as I think we should. Yeah. And we don't recognize the potential of this country to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural democracy, you know? Yeah, we can, we what can do, do what it. Do you, what do you think are the biggest obstacles to that? Well, I think one thing that we've got to do, and this may be a little bit controversial, but I know there are some people that are moving in this direction. We have to confront the people who are most opposed to diversity. And we have to try to understand them because, you know, there's an extreme left and there's an extreme right, but most people fall in between. And so, you know, those of us who, you know, if we pride ourselves on our ability to deal with other cultures, we need to try to deal with other people who have different views from ourselves. So, you know, there are some organizations that are actually working to bridge differences between two groups and, and looking at the right wing, left wing dichotomy and what can be done to, to bridge those differences. You know, instead of writing people off, maybe yeah. we need to pr be promoting interaction and dialogue as you are doing i mean this is yeah. this is an ideal thing what you're doing is something that we should be all of us should be doing mm -hmm. yeah so so we didn't finish your your um the rest of your career development you you went on to graduate school i i think we should be calling you doctor right you have a phd and what what is your phd in in history history yeah. mm -hmm. So while I was at the university, the university acquired the papers of the uh, leader of the intercultural education movement. And uh, since I was working as a research assistant there at the archives, I had the opportunity not only to look at these papers, but to actually interview the person who uh, led this organization in the 1930s. And for me and for all of my colleagues at the university, it was something of, re of revelation to know that this movement actually existed. So that's when I decided that I would, um, you know, make that the topic of my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So it, it was the history of the intercultural education movement in the United States from roughly 1924 to 1940. Wow. But I mean, what was going on then uh, is hard to believe for most people. I mean, there were ethnic studies programs in the schools. Uh, there were groups that were uh, organizing festivals of nations where people could interact from different ethnic backgrounds. There was a lot of this intercultural education and a belief in the importance of ethnicity that people should be proud of their cultures. And it wasn't exclusively white. It also incorporated Black Americans. Yeah. Do you so see would that? Would that be? Hmm. 
what happened to that and what would happen yeah, to that's that, a, a movement uh, like that today? That is a really, that's the story of my dissertation. And by okay. the way, the dissertation was published. Uh, so, um, well, when we, uh, mm-hmm. when World War II approached, there was a very strong emphasis on national unity. And so this movement that flourished in the early 30s was considered, uh, had the potential to be divisive. And so whatever money was being provided by the government to support this work suddenly disappeared. Uh, So I tell the story of how this all happened uh, it, it was. It's a very interesting, a very interesting story. Wow. So you're an expert in immigration. I mean, you're an advocate for immigration, um, and there's so many issues around immigration in today's society. But could you take us back and sort of give us a, you know, I I, I am not that conversant in the history of immigration in our country. I hear, you know, I've read bits and pieces, but mm-hmm. could you, and, and this is hard to do, I know, in a short period of time, but could you give us a little a snapshot, little, little snapshot, a little uh, um, history of immigration in this country? It's not all a wonderful history, is it? No, I'm afraid to say it isn't uh, a wonderful history. And, uh, you know, you can actually uh, see a racist policy um, when I, when I teach uh, immigration history, uh, I take a very expansive view of what it means. So for example, you know, I'll talk about indigenous people. I'll talk about forced migration of African Americans as an, it's a form of migration. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's Asian exclusion. So racism was very much part of our history. It's a very complex history, um, and I, I don't quite know where to start. You, sometimes people will describe the period of the 19th and early 20th century as an era of open immigration, which it was in a way in that we didn't have quotas for particular nationalities. However, there were rules that were put in place governing migration. And so, you know, for example, if you had a particular health condition, you were barred from entering the United States. Or if you didn't have a certain amount of money, you weren't allowed to enter. Or if you were a criminal or a convict, you weren't allowed to enter the United States. What's really interesting is if you look at the history of that period, very often today people say, well, my ancestors came to this country legally. Why can't you get in line and come legally? The reality of the situation is that there were many immigrants during that period who violated U.S. immigration laws and entered this country illegally. For example, uh, there were laws against indentured servitude. There were tens of thousands of people that entered the United States in violation of those laws. Were they undocumented immigrants? You might want to describe them that way. So, you know, we have kind of a distorted view of immigration to the United States. I'm not sure I'm answering that question, but I, no, I you think- are. Um, you're yeah. hitting the high points, and 
And so much of it is papered with uh, the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, and and uh, we're a, we're a, the melting pot, and we're a yeah. you know a nation of immigrants. But in fact, a lot of our history was exclusionary, discriminatory, and and we didn't really treat immigrants very well. My um, one of my closest friends is Italian American, and uh, he he's about our age neck he is our age and um he he is has bitter stories about being discriminated against as an italian american you know being excluded from or the first to be admitted to a club you know a <laughs> private club and how he was treated things like that now you can't i mean you can't compare that to a lot of stories about racism but for him it's real you know, and it yeah. influences the way he views the world. Um, yeah, I think I think, you know, both of you are hitting on something here about, you know, immigration and and the history of immigration and where we are today. Um, there are a lot of policies and we saw we saw some of that some of those policies, those uh, what I call unwelcoming policies, immigration mm -hmm. laws in the, in the previous uh, administration in this country. Um, I mean, anytime you separate your se separate kids from the, their parents is just that's just a problem within itself from, you know, just from a child protective <laughs> standpoint. Um, but, Nick, I, I was reading one of the articles that you sent um, and I want you to talk a little bit about your work with the um, the American Immigrant Policy Portal newspaper, because I know I get that. And I was reading uh, one of the articles that talked about this new concept called the Great Replacement Theory. And. Um, just share a little bit of, your, of what it is, because I think I think this will help us, John, look at where we were, you know, a little history and where we are today with this new concept called the Great Replacement Theory. And it allows can allow us to do a comparison analysis to say, hey, is our immigration policies faring better for um, people who are not born here? Are they worse or they stayed the same? And I think um, insight to this Great Replacement Theory can help us um, discern that. Nick, what are your thoughts on this? Well, first explain what it is, and then what are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, I, I don't remember the names of the people that are promoting this, but um, there is, yeah, no, one of them is a guy named Camus in France, and, and that book had a great deal of influence. He was worried about the Muslim population overwhelming uh, the French population in France. Mm -hmm. So he may have been the one who coined that term. And then it was picked up by Fox News. Yeah, Tucker Carlson. And, and, and Tucker Carlson and, and other people are talking about the Great Replacement Theory. Well, the, the, the truth of the matter is that the majority of immigrants to the United States are people of color. And so there is a fear among white Americans that whatever privileges they've had mm. will somehow be taken away from them if uh, people of color become a majority in the United States. And so that's called the great replacement. Um, and what will be the fate of white people when they are no longer the majority in the United States? That's a very powerful idea. And we need to combat that idea as best we can. The people who are the major proponents of that are all racist and you know, I, I don't think it has any validity what's, whatsoever. 
but it's it's an idea that's out there and it's an idea that has to be combated i think yeah but let me tell you a little bit about the policy portal the idea behind this is that in constructing immigration policy which is a very complex undertaking we need to have access to the best possible research that can kind of guide policymakers in developing new immigration policy. So what we do, and it's an entirely volunteer undertaking, I have about 10, 12 volunteers who work with me, is every month we look at all the new research that has appeared on the topic of immigration, and we will prepare abstracts of of that research and publish a monthly newsletter. And then all of those abstracts are uploaded to two different websites. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that we've now accumulated something like 2,500 different abstracts on various topics related to immigration. Yeah, no, I think I, I was saying I, I think it's very it's a very comprehensive newsletter if you're looking to because I know John said he he wanted to en- enhance his knowledge base around this, and I think the, the the portal has a lot of great resources. I tend to skim through it, and you know, in my work, and grab you know grab what I call some knowledge nuggets from there. And, you know, so I want just circling back to the great replacement theory. Thank you so much for saying that, because I think it is one of those tools of that, those tools of provocation that that tend to continue to promote this division in this in our country. So replace when you hear words like replace replacement, that's an issue. Um, Rhetorics on rhetoric terms on invasion, the, the migrant invasion. Whenever a country is invaded, it means that we have to go to war to protect. And so I just think words, words have very powerful meanings. Yeah. And I think I agree with you. Um, something has to be done to diffuse some of these, um, um, what, I would, what, what I would call racist terminology, but they're kind of, they're not overt, they're kind of covert language in nature just mm-hmm. to stir up people to continue to incite hatred amongst uh, uh, others. So. Thank you for sharing. I think what's important to point out is this is not anything new. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, if you go back to the late 19th, early 20th century, there were people that were talking the same language, that somehow the uh, Anglo-Saxon heart of the United States was, you know, being uh, challenged, that somehow we wouldn't be the same country because we were having all of these inferior groups of uh, Europeans coming to the United States. Yeah. So it's not anything new. Mm-hmm. So the projections are that inevitably, in a, for just a few years, maybe even within our lifetime, Nick, um, is the majority of Americans will be people of color. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. That's the way the trends are, right? Well, so, I, I would challenge that assumption in a certain well, way. Okay, go ahead. Because it's it's based on the assumption that every one of us belongs to our own particular tribe and that there's no interaction taking place between people of different backgrounds. There's no intermarriage going on. Um, I, I think it's a it's a flaw it's it's a flawed outlook to think about everyone as being member of a particular group, especially considering how diverse the United States is. Yeah, okay, that's, I, I get what I agree saying. with that. That, that. that isn't where I was going. That, so I, I was actually thinking, I was saying that, that one of the reasons that that's gonna occur 
is because there is going to be intermarriage. I mean, it, it's, it's happening all over the place, all right? So, right. so whenever there's intermarriage with a person, of, a white person with a person of color, there's going to be kids that are people of color, right? right. So what, whatever it is as a result of immigration or whatever the trends are. So here's where I was going with, the, with this. The result of that is, is the fear, the, the ultimate fear that uh, people of color will then be in positions of power and then become oppressors of the mm -hmm. white people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so maybe I'm naive, but I don't really look at it that way. I look at it means there'll be more healthy competition in, in, in every sense of the word, in the professions, in the economy. Uh, there'll be more excellence because there'll be more competition. Uh, and uh, competition is good. Uh, and and if, we, if we excluded people, we would be excluding people that are, you know, talented and can contribute to our society. So if I don't know if I'm right about that or whether that's naive, but that's what I believe. But how do we how do we through education and other means get people to think of it in, a, in that kind of way, as opposed mm -hmm. to this fear factor, which everything ends with the fear factor? Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no further analysis. Yeah. How do we break uh, through that? You're an educator. What, I, I don't know if you've um, seen the book by uh, Ibram Kendall, how to, mm -hmm. yeah, how to Be an Anti-Racist. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, I think he does say that there is the, there is the, the potential for reverse racism. So I, I think we have to accept that as a possibility, as something that we have to address if it does occur. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, I, let me let me speak. So uh, okay, I can't speak for all African Americans, right? I can speak for only for myself and from what I've seen in, in his, you know, Southern hospitality and how how uh, how the oppressed, those who are oppressed, for some reason, the the irony of that is we're the ones that are oppressed, but we always have been uh, trained to be hospitable to others. Like I was always raised to, you know, to, no matter what, to be, even though I grew up poor, but to respect other people. And that's just how I was raised. And, and, and historically, Blacks have, have not um, done, in my, from a historical standpoint in this country, you, there's no history of Blacks doing harm to white Americans symbolically or, or similar to what we have as African-Americans have endured Mm -hmm. For 300 plus years. So I think that's number one. I, I just think it's not, it's not, you may have some outliers of people who may try to seek revenge for the most part. However, I, I, I do think it's a real fear that that's the, that's, the, that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I can speak for yeah, me. Yeah, but it's irrational. It, it is. I, it I is don't because believe that's going to happen. I mean, there's, why would, why would, why would people of, and by the way, you sh we shouldn't just say people of color as a, it's a yeah. It's not a single tribe. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a diverse mm -hmm. tribe, correct. which is a strength. It's a resource for our country, and right. so there's not going to be any. I, I just can't imagine there's going to be people of color achieving power and then, like you said, having revenge or oppressing mm -hmm. other parties. You know, I just yeah. Wow. Because I've learned, he doesn't talk about that. He he talks about a tension between Africans and African Americans. Some sometimes, 
Yep, 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 yep. And, and so, let me. Yeah, that's I have a friend. That's a reality because I have a friend who's from Africa. He's from Burkina Faso, and so I and we talk about this all the time. Like, he's from Africa, but I'm African American, and so I, I say, what's the difference? Like, why? Because I hear about this tension between Africans and African Americans. There's, I don't know where it's been. And so I asked him, what is, where is this birth? Why is it that way? And he said, uh, and it made sense to me. He said, there's one thing that we have as Africans that you all don't have. We have knowledge of our point of origin. And I mm -hmm. thought it was a powerful. And he said, that's, that's why we hold, we have a sense of pride and self-actualization and self-assurance because it makes to, uh, to African-Americans, we may look at Africans as being, you know, high and mighty, stuck up or whatever you might say, because they have a greater sense of pride because they know their point of origin. He goes back to Burkina, Burkina Faso every year to his tribe where he was born. And, but for me as an African-American, I'm not, I wish I could be Alex Haley and trace back my point of origin, but I can't. The, the, the furthest I can go to is Lee Plantation in Elizabeth, North, North Carolina. That's the furthest I can go back to, but it's not Africa. So I think knowing our history and knowing where you come from, your point of origin, that really gives you a sense of, uh, you know, a pride of who you are as a whole person. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like I said, the furthest I can go back is Lee Plantation, uh, a, you know, a home in, in, in uh, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, where my great great grandparents, um, you know, grew up and were, you know, were slaves at the time. So I think that's some of the that's some of the. Uh, tension that you you can you 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 may be hearing about the origin of the tension between mm -hmm. Africans and African Americans. He uh, you know he takes a very um, a restricted view of what uh, an anti-racist policy should be, you know, and uh, he condemns certain ways of thinking as being in a way a form of racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the idea that the problems faced by African-Americans because they haven't really um, exerted themselves, they haven't, uh, you know, educated themselves, they haven't, they're not motivated enough to succeed. That kind of thinking is ultimately racist thinking, but you, you find that within the African-American community sometimes. Yeah. And, I, you know, I... That, I I mean, I, I think what he's saying is that just about every group in our society has a challenge to overcome when it comes to racism, you know, it, 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 and, and it involves many different groups. It's not only African-Americans now. It's also yeah. other groups. I mean, look what's going on with the Asian-American community these days. Yeah. You know? I think we all I think we all have lived experiences across what I call the oppressive oppression privilege continuum. Mm. Regardless of our race, you, you explain, you just shared that with us. Like it, your, how your grandparents grew up this poor, that's oppression. And you had some oppression growing up as a child, some facing discrimination growing up and that's oppression, but there's also privileges that you have um, been able to, you you're educated, you, you, you know, you, uh, you world traveled. So I think I agree with you. I think we all have, if we can only just do some self-reflection along that, we'll find that everybody, like you said, all cultures, regardless of where you are in the, um, 
I guess the hierarchy or the, the social hierarchy in this country from the top to the, to the least, we all will have, can chart and plot our lives on this oppression privilege continuum mm-hmm. in some form or fashion. So yeah. I've been thinking as you've been talking about this, white folks get together and they get to meet each other. And inevitably we talk about where our ancestors came from. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it happens all the time. All the time, yeah. So if you're at a dinner party with me, Kiva, how are you feeling when all the white people around the table are talking about that uh, and you can't trace back? What is it about tracing back to your ancestors that matters? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I, think, I think Alex Haley put it real plain and simple in the title of his movie, Roots. It really tells you because, you know, roots of a tree, they're strong. They dig deep down into the ground. They give you a solid foundation for the tree. And not knowing that and not having that growing up, um, it has to be instilled in you by somebody. And and that could be a challenge. It, it, you know, it depends on, you know, your do you at growing up as a child? I'm, I was blessed to have a good grandmother. You know, grandmother was was mm-hmm. you know helping me understand my roots and as a black man, I grew up you know of course, of course, without a father, and so that's a, a, an identity issue right there, not having that connection, and then you don't have a connection to your cultural roots. So it it can it can really um, you know if I was out to answer your question, if I was at a table and you started talking about um, your your heritage and your roots, I would just share what I know up until what I know. And it doesn't really take, it takes me back to my roots, but the roots that I could stop at is oppressive, <laughs> it's slavery, it's nothing positive about nothing where I positive. can stop at. Yeah. Correct, right. yeah, yeah. And so in those that are hearing the conversation, you know, it, it, can, it can, the perception that be, that's bestowed upon me in comparison to, you know, how you can go back, if it's a rich culture and this, you have this, it makes it it makes it really difficult mm-hmm. on both sides. Mm-hmm. So that's a good I'm glad that's a good point. Yeah. I've, I've been in those situations before, but I've learned to cherish what I have. You know, I've learned to cherish. Sure, I know. And, you have. I know. You yeah, have. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank uh, you for asking that. Yeah. So um, are, are you an optimist about our country in terms of immigration or a pessimist? How, how do you have are you hopeful or? Is it a hopeless situation, Nick? How do you feel? About uh, I'm a, a glass half full person, and so I'm I'm generally uh, hopeful. Uh, I think we've made uh, huge progress as a nation. We have a long way to go, but you know I think the whole multicultural sensitivity is now almost mainstream. I think mm-hmm. uh, the appreciation for diversity is almost mainstream. And these are all positive developments. So, yeah, there are always going to be people that are putting up resistance. You know, that's always there. But especially if we work together, especially if the various immigrant communities and the African-American community are working together, I think we're going to emerge from all of this in a much better place. Mm. Wow. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm being <laughs> no, that's, optimistic. But. That, I, w- I was going to take it a step further 
and asked you uh, what I call the miracle dream question. So you fall asleep tonight and you have a dream about the, exper the experiences of immigrants. And when you wake up in the morning, a miracle has occurred for the better. What would you like to see? Well, um, well, one thing I wanted to share with you, and I hope you find this relevant, is there are various organizations that I think are doing incredible work in this field. And I'd like to just mention two. And so maybe the miracle would be to see these organizations continue to expand and proliferate around the United States. Wow. Do you know, do you all know about Welcoming America? What's it called? Yeah, so Welcoming America is a Georgia based organization. And what they do is they set standards for communities to become welcoming. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, and they provide technical assistance to communities that would like to adhere to these standards. So um, they have been growing and growing. And if you go to their website, you'll see that something like 400 communities around the United States have chosen to become welcoming communities. Now in New Jersey, we have only two. We have Princeton and we have Jersey City that are welcoming communities. So I'm, I'm very supportive of the work of Welcoming America. I mean, like one of their standards is that a local community, whether it's a, a county or a town, should have one official responsible for the integration of immigrants into the community, right? Uh, another uh, necessity is to address the issue of language and so that people are able to access services and supports and they don't face the barrier of language. So they have this all laid out for what a community needs to do to qualify as a welcoming community. The other organization that I'd like to recommend is the American Immigration Council. And the American Immigration Council uh, just incorporated what's called New American Economy. New American Economy was a group in New York that was doing research on the impact of immigration in local communities all over the United States. In fact, we were able to get two Gateways for Growth grants from New American Economy, and we produced reports on the impact of immigration in Mercer County and Middlesex County. Well, anyway, New American Economy is now merged with the American Immigration Council, and they have now created a new entity called Center for Inclusion and Belonging. And what they are doing right now is they are surveying organizations all over the United States that are working to create more inclusive communities. Um, and they will publish a report about all of these organizations before uh, the end of the year. The idea is that they wanna promote the kind of work that's being done in scattered places all over the United States. Oh, so I think that's a, a really great a great issue. Yeah. Is there a country that uh, does it right? <laughs> does immigration right? And, and what, what would it be and what can we learn from it? <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a group in Europe called MIPEX, Migration Immigration Policy Index, I think is what it stands for. Anyway, MIPEX, every two years, 
evaluates the work of countries around the world in integrating immigrants into their societies. They have 56 countries that participate in this effort. Hmm. Any idea where the United States ranks on that list? That's what I was going to ask you. 49? 49? 48? <laughs> no, seventh. Seventh, actually. It's, we're pretty good. We're seventh, oh, really? out of, wow. seventh out of 56. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's what I was saying before. We, you know, sometimes we minimize, minimize the progress mm. that we've actually made. Oh, that's good. Um, so in today's news, we're, you know, we're hearing about um, the United States, I guess it's 100,000 uh, immigrants from Ukraine with a special program for them. Uh, but we have, we have distressed people from uh, Central America that have we've just treated amazingly poorly i think but um in many different ways but there there are different restrictions for them what what's the difference is it is a legitimate difference good point Uh, i think being uh, honest about this there is a racial element to all of this and i think we Mm -hmm. are much more receptive to ukrainian immigrants because they're white than we are to other immigrants that, that's certainly when, when you look at what's going on in Europe yeah. with countries like Poland and Hungary that have been turning away people who are claiming asylum on the border. And now all of a sudden they've accepted, you know, millions of Ukrainian immigrants. It's, it's very clear what's going on, which is not to say that there isn't a case for, you know, being receptive and, and welcoming to Ukrainian immigrants. But uh, I, I do worry that we're ignoring other people and focusing our attention. I mean, even the Afghan resettlement isn't complete yet. Um, and and the, the explanation or of legitimate difference is, well, this is a war. Yeah. But mm. being oppressed and being, you can be oppressed in different ways. I mean, sure, the war is terrible, but so are the gangs and whatever you know, these folks from Latin America are, are fleeing from them. I and mean, I think about, I can't imagine marching hundreds and hundreds of miles in the conditions they are, unless I am really, really. That's right. In bad, in a really, really bad situation with my kids and everything. And yeah. I just don't think that we have the ability, a lot of us don't have the ability uh, to uh, relate, you know, to empathize with mm-hmm. people's struggles. And we have so many, um, so many easy, easy excuses to fall behind. Yeah. And you can, you know, look at the plight of Haitian refugees that oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. are making their That's way on the border from yeah. uh, places like Chile and, and, and Brazil. And, you know, we're sent back to Haiti where they haven't lived in 10 years. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we still have, you know, I think we still have work to do in terms of racism from, you know, people who uh, are identified as white versus those who have colored skin and the treatment of, of those. Because if you think about the Ukraine Ukraine situation, the whole idea was to get women and children out, right? But there were stories of African uh, Nigerian women who were oh, not yeah. allowed to yeah. get on the train. Yeah. And so, and because of color. So even, you know, it's not even gender specific. Uh, it was, it was all uh, racially motivated, some of the decisions uh, around that. So I, I, I agree, Nick. I think we definitely have come, 
uh, a long way since the National Naturalization Act was passed in 1952. Uh, but we still have, you know, a lot of work to do around how, you know, um, we are wel a welcoming society for all people, regardless of the color of their skin. One, one thing I just want to mention about the southern border is, uh, you know, I do some work for the New Jersey Business Immigration Coalition. And we decided recently that we were going to tr tackle the whole issue of uh, border policy. And the idea behind that is um, you're not going to have a progressive immigration policy unless you can manage borders. So you cannot have open borders and have mm -hmm. a progressive immigration policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we need to do something to streamline the asylum system. Mm -hmm. You know, people shouldn't have to wait four or five years before their claims are adjudicated. So, you know, actually the Biden administration is doing some really good work uh, in, the, in that area. They are beginning to allow asylum officers to hear um, requests for asylum at the border rather than having to send every case to a judge. Mm. And I think that's a good move. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, some people don't think it's a good move. I think it's a good move because what I know, for, uh, I know some asylum officers and I, I, I know that they have the interests of true refugees at heart. So, um, so I, I, to, to have those cases move much more quickly through the system, I think would be very helpful. Wow. So we're, um, we're coming to the end. And one of the questions <laughs> we, we like to ask is, um, who, who, if anybody, would you cite as your role model in the area of... Um, social and racial justice. I have to give some credit to uh, my mentor at the University of Minnesota. He was one of the uh, best historians of U.S. immigration. Mm -hmm. And he was also an activist in, in so many different areas. And I think he sort of influenced me to uh, ultimately choose to be an activist rather than an academic. I didn't mention mm -hmm. that, but Mm -hmm. um, when I got my degree, I decided to, 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 to do the, the career of an activist. And that's when I came to the International Institute and I became director of the Institute. Uh, well, this was a lot of fun, and I, I really commend yeah. you guys for the work you're doing. This is a, a tremendous effort that you're doing. I think it's so important. And, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to promote this as much as I can. Really thank our guest, uh, Mr. Nick Montalto, for joining us and giving us insight on immigration policy, law, and history. It was a fruitful conversation that we really appreciate. So thank you all for listening. Thank you all who are watching on our YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe and please join us again for another Courageous Conversation in our Race to Social Justice. The Race to Social Justice podcast is produced, edited, and mixed at The Dream in Austin, Texas. Visit thedreamrecordingstudio.com for more info.